Before we jump into the text, I, I want to take a moment and ask you to uh, think of that lost cause, that person that you would kind of feel is, is a lost cause. You wouldn't say it. But I don't mean somebody that you've seen on TV. I mean somebody you really know that you think, man, they just, they're just too, too proud too arrogant, or they're too comfortable in their life, or they're too addicted uh, to their vices, or they're, you know, they're just too, too far gone. They would, they would never come to Christ. It just seems like uh, a waste to even spend time trying. I want you to kind of put them in a little window up here, open that window up, and keep them up there in your mind as we go through this, this text. So let's just start with the, uh, the first eight verses. Let's just read them again. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now I think for most of us, the the beginning of this passage, the first eight verses, seem a little bit mundane. It's just that you know, we read right through it. It's just that material, that verbiage that, that kind of gets us, transitions us to the next section. Has a few details, but it doesn't seem like much. Jesus is getting popular. He knows the Pharisees are kind of on to him, so he's going to head up to Galilee. Uh, he decides to go through Samaria. He stops at a well where he asks the lady for a drink, and meanwhile his disciples are out getting some, uh, some food. It's, it's just that kind of stuff we read through without blinking much. But the fact is, it's anything but main, mundane. There's actually a, a transition here, a kind of theological transition that will be fully realized kind of by the end of the chapter that's, that's kind of revolutionary. And to a Jewish reader, it's pretty shocking. You see, what's happening here as we start this text is Jesus is lifting his disciples and, and us, our eyes, to see his, his full gospel vision, the full scope, I should say, of his gospel vision. We get the first clue about this from that, that kind of boring phrase in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. See, what we need to catch is that Jesus didn't actually have to pass through Samaria. In fact, you have kind of, you know, Judea, then Samaria, then Galilee. He's going up to Galilee, so he's going through Samaria. But most Jews, a lot of Jews, especially ones that consider themselves very righteous Jews, rabbis, teachers, they would go around Samaria. They would cross the Jordan and go up around Samaria to Galilee because they didn't want to go through Samaria because they considered it kind of a contaminated territory. And we don't have any evidence that Jesus was in a hurry. He didn't have to go through Samaria. But in another sense, 
He had to. The, the, the word had there has this divine necessity to it. It's often translated as, as must. Look back in chapter 3. I mean, I could do this through the whole book, but just look back in chapter 3 at the word must. It's the same word. So uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That's that same word. You have to be. It has to happen. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. He must. It's got to happen. There's a divine necessity for his mission. This has to happen. Look at verse, uh, let's see here, verse 30, where John says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Same word. Has to happen. Jesus has to go through Samaria as part of his his, his, uh, his gospel mission, as part of his mission as the Messiah, he has to do this. He's compelled, is the idea, because of what he needs to do to go through Samaria. Now, this would be pretty shocking to the Jews because they, like I said, they, they despised the Samaritans. They would go out of their way to go around Samaria. Now, there's a long history and a reason for this animosity between them. You can go back to 2 Kings 17 and you find out that the northern tribe back in 729 BC, the Assyrians came through and, and conquered the northern tribe of, of the Jews. And they, when they conquered them, they took away their noblemen and their chiefs and then they brought other pagan people into intermix with them. That's what the Assyrians would do to kind of uh, put down a people, they would intermix different cultures with them to try to destroy their culture. And that's what happened to the northern tribe. They got intermixed. They even intermixed their faith and their religious ideas. They soon rejected all of the Old Testament except the Pentateuch. They built their own temple, a false temple, which the Jews hated. They even burned it down at some point. And so they looked at these people as mongrels, as spiritual mongrels, wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. Yet Jesus is purposely moving towards the Samaritans, going right into the territory. He's compelled to go to Samaria. See, the disciples at this point, in, in just following Jesus physically, are having their boundaries challenged stretched, their, their relational comfort zones is being pushed out as they walk with Jesus into Samaria. They're literally going places they don't want to go. But the biggest stretch is not so much that they go into Samaria, but what happens there, this scene that happens at this well, especially as it relates to the, the, the flow of the narrative thus far. If you've been with us, you know back in chapter 2, early on, Jesus' first miracle was changing water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And we're told there that he fills the purification jars up to the full with his new wine. There's this theme of Jesus being the purifier, that what he's going to do at the cross is going to fill up the old system of purification. That theme continues in the next chapter when he goes into the temple and he cleanses, he purifies the temple. 
And the theme continues into the next section where he speaks to Nicodemus and he says, you must be washed with water in the spirit to be born again. It's this cleansing idea. And then at the end of chapter 3, just before our text, we're told in verse 25 that the discussion arose amongst John and, and, and the Jews over purification. And John's answer is that, hey, purification is going to come with the bridegroom. The bridegroom that God's people have been waiting for, they're his bride. He brings ultimate purification, and John is saying that's that's Jesus. And now as we enter into chapter 4, Jesus shows up at a well in Samaria. At first it seems like, well, it just happened. He just went through there and ended up at this well, and it seems like no big deal. But it's a huge moment. Not only because she's a Samaritan and, you know, just even talking to her, he could be contaminated. That's how the Jews would look at it, unclean. But more than that, it's because we have a scene here of the bridegroom meeting his bride. This goes all the way back in the Old Testament. That's why I had that, that scene read out of Genesis. You see... It tells us here that he's at Jacob's well. Jacob's well. Jacob, their great patriarch, met his bride at a well. And Isaac, his father, uh, Isaac, Abraham had Isaac, sent his servant out, we read that passage, to get a bride for Isaac. And where did he go? He went to a well. And the sign that he asked for to receive the bride is, will she ask me uh, for a drink and draw water? It's exactly what Jesus does here. It's a theme. The, The great patriarchs of God's people find their brides at wells. Believe me, a Jew would not miss this. Jesus at this well, Jacob's well, it's pointing out asking this woman to draw water for him. If you ever wonder why he didn't just draw water himself and get them, because he's playing off this, this history. See, the real shocker in this first section is that Jesus, the one being held up as the bridegroom of God's people, is seeking his bride in Samaria. The bride who will receive his testimony, his word. The bride who he will make his own. The bride who he will purify with his baptism is not being chosen exclusively of the Jews, but even the sinful, contaminated Samaritans. And ultimately, by the end of the chapter, verse 42, the whole world, the contaminated, dirty, pagan world, Jesus is going to as his bride. The bridegroom is seeking Jesus is lifting up his disciples' eyes to see the full scope of his salvation work. It's way bigger than they think. If you're not sure of this, look at when we get to verse 35, what he says. He says, do not say, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Lift up your eyes, look. This is a radical idea for the Jews. They were totally focused inward 
They were God's people. They were his bride. They had no vision outside of themselves. And I think this lifting of their eyes is a challenge for us. As Christians today, we can have, I know, I can, just have our focus very down on our own little evangelical little enclave, maybe our little community here, right here at CTR, sort of a, the safe place from the contamination, not of, not of the smoke, but of the world. We can kind of have our own little, you know, Bible studies, which are good, but we can get very inward, very navel-gazing, kind of just waiting for God to come back and save us. Sometimes I think the church, we kind of act like, uh, like salvation preppers, right? You know those doomsday preppers that are saving everything? For the, it's all going to huddle up and get our bunker. We can be that way, waiting for Jesus. It's all very inward. But Jesus lifts our heads and says, no, look out. He's compelled to go to the lost, dirty, contaminated world. And if we're going to walk with him, that is our journey. This is what the disciples have to do to follow him. It will mean going places and engaging with people that we would never have intentionally sought out. He will stretch our boundaries. In fact, it should become our compulsion to go to reach out to our lost, broken world, to those we feel are lost, a lost cause. This is what it means to walk with him. Think of that person that you have in that window, that person that challenges your boundaries. You don't even know how they came into your life, maybe. God just kind of puts you in that circumstance and you feel uncomfortable. You quite don't know what to do with them. But this text doesn't just demonstrate the scope of Jesus' gospel vision and lift our heads to see it. It also stretches us in that it shows us the nature of the gospel task. It shows us the vision and then it shows us specifically the nature as it zeroes in on his conversation with this woman. So look at verse 7 with me. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus, I'm sure he was thirsty when he got to this well, and he probably did want a drink, but he waits for this woman because he knows she has a much deeper thirst, a more significant thirst, a soul thirst. So when she comes, he offers her living water. But the point of the text here, as you look at the interaction with her, is that she is kind of spiritually clueless, isn't she? She's totally into the dark as to her, her spiritual need. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God, 
eternal life that's before you, if you knew the giver, God's Son incarnate, who's standing in front of you, you would be asking me. But she doesn't ask him. In fact, look at how she responds, verse 11. The woman said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? She says, you don't have a bucket. She misses it completely. She's thinking at a a completely physical level. How are you going to get this water? You don't even have a bucket. So Jesus tries again. And this time when he tries again, we see the, the real nature of this water. So look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, this water here in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, let me explain. The water I offer will bring an end to your real thirst, complete satisfaction. It will ultimately well up to eternal life. And if we flip over, I want you to flip over to chapter 7, verse 37. We can see exactly what this water is, what he's talking about, if you're kind of unclear. He gets very clear in chapter 7, verse 37. On the day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit who is received by those who believe in him, who receive his word, who put their faith in him and trust him, and thus having the spirit, God's spirit, come in, he brings true satisfaction to the thirst of their souls, to that frustrated thirst of their souls for eternity. It's water springing up to eternal life. But look how the woman responds in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still is missing it. She still thinks he's talking about physical water like from this well. She doesn't get it. She's stuck kind of at this physical Level, this carnal level of looking at things. She is so blind to her spiritual need. She seems kind of like a lost cause. I think she's a lot, a, a picture of our, of, our, of our lost world. A world full of people spiritually ignorant, clueless to their real need their hearts and minds geared only at the physical, material world. If you've done any witnessing, if you tried to share the living water, uh, you you know how this goes. When I was uh, in, in seminary in Australia, they had mission week where the students at the seminary had to go work with the local church for a week. 
and I went to this church, and I went along with Paul Reese, who was the former pastor at our church, and they sent us out into the neighborhood for three days to knock on doors and uh, try to share the gospel with people. Um, for three days we did that. Most people would, we, they had screen doors there. They always had the door open with the locked screen door, and you would knock and kind of peer in, and they would say, hey, Mom, the Mormons are here. <laughs> and uh, we'd say, no, no, we're not, and we'd try to share. But people weren't interested. They said, no, no, we're good. You can go on. We spent three days doing that. We did have one woman, amazing story. I won't tell you about that now, but you can ask me about it. But you see, they were satisfied. They, they didn't have, the, the, the only needs they could think of were not spiritual and they weren't interested. In Spokane, that same guy, Paul Reese, when he was the pastor here, the two of us went out on the streets with a video camera before everybody had the phones. And we asked people this question, what do you need most? And we would interview them. And what do you think people said? You know, they said money and, you know, a home or, you know, uh, health. I remember one guy at the mall, this old guy, he thought about it for a while, and he said, an Avalon. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he said, a Toyota Avalon. <laughs> That's what he needed most. Just this physical level. I see it with the young people today, you know. They're all good. They're fine. As long as they have their phone and some social media and some Taco Bell, they're good. They're chill. You start to talk about Jesus, they kind of glaze over. It's depressing. It's almost enough to make you believe that they are fine. They're all good. But there's this dead giveaway and we see it as Jesus continues in his conversation with this, with this woman. Look at verse 16. Let's see here. Yeah. Well, let's start at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see, although on the one hand, she appears totally unaware of her spiritual thirst, on the other hand, she clearly feels something is missing. She feels thirsty for something deeply, and she's trying to fill it with relationship after relationship after relationship, but nothing is satisfying. Nothing is getting there. It's never enough. People think they don't have a spiritual need. They, 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 they think it's only physical and emotional that they have their needs, but they're just misdiagnosing the problem and they're medicating with the wrong things. And it's a dead giveaway, that endless procession of relationships that endless obsession with entertainment and stimulation. It's enough to keep them numb for a while, but it never ultimately is enough. They have to keep trying to replace it with something, and each thing gets less and less satisfying. You ever notice that? 
all the false thirst, false thirst quenchers that people pour themselves into or go after. We see it. We see it relationally. Just like this woman. I remember my buddy in college, he was on the phone in the hallway. This is back in the days, right? They had one phone in the hall for your whole floor, and it would ring really loud, and somebody would answer it and say, Hughes, it's for you, and then you'd go get it and try to stretch the cord to your room. And my friend JR, he was on the phone, and you could always hear everybody on the phone. And I hear him going, Dad, really? Seriously? I don't know. When? Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe I can make it. I don't know, Dad. And he gets off the phone, and I said, what's that about? He said, oh, my dad's getting married. And I said, oh, isn't that good? And he goes, no, it's the fifth time. He goes, it just gets, it just gets worse every time, and he can't see it. Just like this woman, just trying to fill that soul thirst. We see it with stuff and achievements, that career, the dream home. Youth always have the the next, young people always have the next thing syndrome, right? Like, it's going to be, I just got to get, you know, into college I want to get into. I just got to get to that career. I just got to get that relationship. Then we just got to get that, always that next thing. You get older, you start to see it often. It's never enough to quench that thirst. And Jesus is offering this woman living water that leads to eternal life. The very Spirit of God, he says, that will quench that deep soul thirst forever and give real permanent satisfaction, give eternal life with God. My friends, as followers of Christ trying to walk with him and be like him on mission as his disciples, this this is our model. This this is how how we should be bringing the gospel. We've got to move towards our broken world. We've got to have a compulsion to look beyond ourselves and look out. This is very convicting to me as a pastor because I live in the middle of, right? I'm in the center of this little culture, Christian subculture, which is great in lots of ways, but it's easy to lose, to get my head down, to get absorbed, and to quit looking up and looking out, having that compulsion to go, to go to that that place that's uncomfortable, to be with that person that's so different than me, to engage with their, their false thirsts, their felt needs. We do, do got to engage with those things. And it can be a long process in people's lives as you're with them as they're on that fifth relationship, as they're in crisis because their career is falling apart. Will we offer the living water that we've received? And I think we should be encouraged. That can sound like, wow, that's, that's hard. And it is. But we need to be encouraged because look at what happens here in this scene. You see, Jesus, having kind of poked and prodded at this woman's relational mess, at the very thing that she's unsuccessfully trying to fill that spiritual void in her life with to quench the thirst, is in doing that, he seems to have wakened her a bit, hasn't he? 
Her spiritual eyes seem to start opening up. This woman says in in verse 19, she says to him as he's saying this, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You, you, You know things. And then she asks him a question. There's a turning point here. It's in the form of a statement, but look at verse 20 with me. She says, well, go back to 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She, She wants to know where worship really happens. She's turned to the spiritual here. She's asking about how you you truly know and interact with God. That's what she's asking him. She's seeking spiritually suddenly. She's interacting with her her real thirst. And look at Jesus' answer in verse uh, 21 there. Jesus uh, said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. Remember, the hour always pointing to the cross, the hour of his death and resurrection. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know. I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, Jesus said to her. I who speak to you am he. You see, Jesus explains that the time has come in him and and his hour at the cross. The time has come not only for the inflowing of, of, of living water to, to come, the Spirit of God to bring eternal life, but for the outflowing of true worship through Spirit and truth. True worship has nothing to do with a special location on the mountains or in Jerusalem or a rituals or a temple or even religious status. No, it's all through Him and through the cross. So even this sinful Samaritan woman that looks so contaminated to the Jews will be able to enjoy true, real worship, know God. As she comes to Jesus, the truth, and drinks the spirit of God, the living water. And it's exactly what seems to happen here. Look at verse 28 with me. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did, can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and to stay. He stayed for two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard of ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. Note that John points out that she left her water jars behind. She's done 
satisfying her thirst the old way. She's now drinking in the living water, and it overflows in what? In witness. She goes out to the ultimate expression of worship, proclaiming Christ. And and the fields are now being harvested, aren't they? So the, the shocking picture illustrated by Jesus asking this woman at a well for a drink is complete. Jesus is receiving his bride, his people, as they come to him. And it's, it's half-breed, carnal, idolatrous, ignorant Samaritans. It's the world who will believe and receive him. This would be such a shock to the Jews, to the disciples, to the original readers of this text. But to us, I think it should be two things. First of all, it should be really encouraging. Because we see here this spiritually closed person who's kind of clueless to her spiritual need, kind of, a, kind of a lost cause in the Jews' eyes. I mean, she's just way far off. She's had five husbands. She's gone. Hardened. We see her thirst quenched. That thirst that she was trying to fill with all these relationships and even ritualistic religion of the Samaritans. Yet as she's introduced to Jesus and begins to interact with him, we see her heart softened. We see her eyes open. We see the living water begin to revive her. And she becomes a true worshiper and a bold witness. This is really exciting and encouraging, I think, when you think of that person you may have had in your window. Maybe that person is you. Or you've been the one that goes, no. Been there, done that, tried that. Mm. It's not a lost cause. We must keep bringing the living water to people in witness, in word. We must keep doing the hard work of, of pushing our boundaries reaching out to people and at the level Jesus starts at that felt need he starts where she's at but he does the work of bringing her along to get her to her real thirst we must keep praying for God's spirit to awaken them this is what Jesus is about it's what he does it's why he came for sinners for the sick for the tax collectors the lost the contaminated the cursed us He offers living water. He offers his spirit. Which brings me to the second thing about this scene. Not only is it encouraging, but I think it's really challenging. When I look at this, I think, do, do I have that compulsion that Jesus has when he looks out at the lost world? Where it says he, he had to go. Am I even looking Am I just kind of averting my eyes? Do I have a a revulsion rather than a compulsion, right? Look at the disciples here. They're so real. They're so us. Are they excited about Jesus evangelizing the Samaritan women? Look at verse 27. 
Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking? But, excuse, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? <laughs> Did they come back and, and, and see Jesus there and talking to this woman and think, oh, we, should, we should go pray. He's talking to this woman. She, she, needs, she needs him. We, we should go pray. No, they, they just think this is awkward. This is socially inappropriate. In their minds, they're thinking, why is Jesus even talking with her? What are you doing? But they're just keeping their mouths shut in hopes that she will go away and the uncomfortable moment will pass. Are they looking out at the people of Samaria, Samaria the Samaritans, people of Samaria, and, and, and seeing fields that are ripe for harvest? Not really. Look at verse 31 with me. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I love this. I mean, there they are. They're just thinking at a physical level too, aren't they? Just like this woman. She's thinking about water. They're thinking about food. And they can't get past it. Just like when they were in the boat with them, right? Somebody have bread? What? What's going on? And Jesus says to them, verse 35, look at, look at kind of his answer. Do you, well, let me start back. Jesus said to them, my food is to the will, of, the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus says, I know you guys talk about the, the you say four months and then the harvest is coming, that you talk about that phys, at that physical level, but he's saying, look up. Get your eyes off the material world. See the real harvest. One commentator I read was talking about his experience of going uh, to this area, the Middle East there, and into that area of Samaria and actually going to Jacob's well and he sat there at the well and he said he was reading this story he thought he would read the story he was at the well and he said he looked up and across the desert was a, a group of Arabs coming all dressed in white and it was hot and they were kind of shimmering in that heat as they were moving towards him through the desert and he thought to himself wonder if that's what Jesus looked up and saw when he said look at the fields they're white for harvest you know do we look out do we get our heads out do we look at the world with this kind of vision are we compelled to go to offer the living water I think that's the real challenge of this text let's pray father we are so like your disciples we get our heads down we start to look inward spiritually. We lose our vision for the lost, for the broken, for this world. We want to stay in our comfortable spot. But you stretch us. 
You call us to go to those that we wouldn't think of, that we wouldn't think would respond. You call us to see ourselves in that. May we feel your compulsion. May we go and offer the living water to this dry and parched world. Amen.